Kia ora and welcome to Beyond Consultation, a podcast that will help you in your public or community sector work to increase your impact by doing more than just ticking the box of consultation. I'm Paul McGregor from Business Lab, and we're interested in the mindsets and methods of people who are making a bigger impact by working collaboratively with communities, industries, and other organizations. Ma mihi mote Have you ever heard the song The Boy Is Mine by Brandy and Monica? I haven't, but it turns out it was the number one hit song in 1998. I don't remember that from 1998. I also don't remember as a 10 year old anything from my history class other than the incredible boredom of rote learning year after year after date after date of Tudor English history. And my year seven class on history put me off history for a long time. It's only recently, actually, as I've started to learn more about Tiao Māori, that I've come to appreciate that history is story. And history is context. And context and stories are everything when you're trying to work with a community to enable change. You might have heard the Fakatoki. Which is all about walking into the future with your eyes fixed on the past. It's the idea from Te Ao Māori that our ancestors are always with us. Our tupuna are in the room. If only we can be alive to their presence and listen and understand the legacy that they have left us. I share all of that as an introduction to today's cheeky little bonus episode. This is like a episode 41B. We're going back to my conversation with Simon Wright on the history of democracy. Now, stay with me here. For better or worse, we take our democracy for granted often today. The idea of representative democracy. That we, the people, vote others in to make laws for us, to govern us, unless, of course, enough of us complain loudly enough about something. So Simon takes us back in time to the roots of our democracy today, to Rome, to Greece, and unpacks what are the implications for us today? What are we taking for granted now, and how can we use those stories, those histories from the past, to inform steps forward in how we work together today? One final thing before we kick into this conversation, if you haven't yet checked out our Reframe program, I encourage you to do so. Go to businesslab.co.nz slash reframe. Come and join a community of people trying to push their practice and their organization's practice forward. So please welcome back to the show, Simon Wright. If you think about democracy, there are other forms of democracy out there than mm. elected representative democracy, and there are other institutions out there, so still democratic, different forms. So they've got a long history. Deliberative democracy is one that gets talked about a lot. I, I know you've had people talk about that on the podcast. Well, you know, that's got a at least a two and a half thousand year history. Mm. So we do actually have some of these things 
in the kettle that we could call on. We know that things like citizens' assemblies and citizens' juries and are good institutions. They're they're much better institutions for trying to deal with complex problems. So when you've got the OECD, it's hardly renowned as an organization that's radical. Now calling on governments to catch the deliberative, I don't know if you saw their report, but their one Mm. last year, the deliberative wave report, I think from memory, it was two or 300 case built on two or 300 case studies from around the world of of deliberative process using many publics, so randomly selected, stratified many publics, deliberative processes, and I think around 40% of those processes undoubtedly had influence on, on policy decisions. So when you've got the OECD calling on governments to catch the deliberative wave, you've got a big question, where's New Zealand? <laughs> and we were talking before I, I hit the record button, you know, you were saying, Simon, you know, looking back over the last 10 years where your, your work's really been focused in this area and you were sort of scratching your head going, oh, I can't see many examples, but they're starting to pop up now. Yeah. And so, you know, going back to the Bioethics Council, I mean, that, mm. I guess what hurt me so much when it was disestablished was before you institute deliberative, deliberative, start doing deliberative work tomorrow, you only get good at doing it by doing it and reflecting mm. on how you go and mm. The Bioethics Council was one of the few examples in New Zealand's history where people started to seriously start experimenting with these ways of working. At the time, we were probably mm. up there in the world in terms of those sorts of that sort of work, and yet change of government and it's destroyed. And it, it was seemed almost public service. The, the, the public servants could have gone, we've got so many wicked problems out there, water, Health, all the rest of it. Even at, back in the mid 2000s, it, it was well known that we needed these sorts of institutions to solve those sorts of problems. Mm. So politicians might make the decision to ex the Bioethics Council, but wouldn't you take the people who'd been involved and put them to work in another area where there was mm. government priority? Mm. But there, there was no leadership in that mm. sense. So, yeah, I could understand that would be very frustrating to be part um, of. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, now I think there is internationally it's happening and I think we'll probably get swept up in that. Yeah. I also recently was part of a group who set up Trust Democracy, so a new civil society organization. One of the aims of Trust Democracy was to try and improve the level of, of discussion about democracy because I just don't think we have much going on in it yet. Certainly mm. not in the, in the mainstream media, but we're mm. reporting that you get tends to just, it's just focused on the system that we, it doesn't question the, the basis of the system we have and whether it's fit for 21st century or anything like that. I, it's very unusual to hear anything in our media like that. So one of the purposes of Trust Democracy was at least to try and to shine a light promote, on, on, yeah, to, yeah. to promote discussions about some of the possibilities that mm. democracy offers. <laughs> so. So, for example, you could say that elected representative democracy, which was basically became the dominant model after the uh, English, French, and American revolutions, is is a system that is designed to keep the public out of decision making. It was never called democracy when it was formed. It was called republic, uh, a republic, <laughs> and 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 it's a system to put elites into power. Mm. And mm. if you look at the American um, system, just as an example. Mm it really insulates decision makers from the public. Mm. 
So very in, in the original version of the constitution, there weren't that many people voting for a start, but <laughs> franchise came later, extending the franchise. But you basically, voters had very little say in who actually got put into the, into the, into the, the decision-making seats. So you have yeah. things like the Electoral College. You have the, a Supreme Court that is appointed for life uh, by the elite and have, you know, make very consequential, consequential decisions, but they're not accountable to the public. And, well, it's also interesting. I recently listened to a podcast about the um, Constitutional Convention in America. Right. And in these, the stated problem that the convention was trying to solve was an excess of democracy. <laughs> okay. <laughs> well, um, uh, but then you go, well, what kind of democracy? <laughs> so that had the, the king, the mm. king of England. And a lot of the elites in, in America were very happy with the king of England. They, they, they were doing good business. Then they weren't happy when the English started to restrict them a little bit. So Washington and those people like that made their money from buying, well, taking Indian lands and, and developing it and selling it off. And Brits, one thing they didn't want was a war with the Americans, with the, with the Indians or the mm. Native Americans. So they decided, and they knew that just taking their land would spark a war. So they, mm. they really restricted that practice and it didn't make Washington is often small, happy at all. Others of the elite were traders and British objectives and started to enforce the rules around not trading with the Spain and uh, Portugal with whom Britain was at war. So they weren't happy with Americans making money uh, by selling goods to, to them, to their enemies. So this was cutting across the livelihoods of some of these mm. elites. So that's a bit of the history of what sparked the revolution. Even even some way into the revolution, the so-called revolutionaries would have been very happy just to call it off and go back to having a king. If the king had agreed to go, okay, we'll let you get some Indian land. That's fine. Mm. It didn't work out that way. So they had the revolution. And then after the revolution, you know, men go and die. So they often go, well, we're not prepared just to be serfs anymore. We want some yeah. control. So they... Yeah. Had various, you know, they had small, it was small scale countries, small towns, and, and they had lots of farmers, so on, now sitting in decision making seats, making, making policy decisions for their communities, pretty small communities. They knew each other really, you know, everyone knew everybody. Things are pretty transparent when you're operating at that level. And this historian I was listening to said, Basically, those farmers, well, mainly farmers in those days, who were now running the country, so normal people, the, the, the sort of property developer elites, used the excuse that these, these farmers had ruined the economy. Whereas other people were, were saying, well, of course the economy's in tatters. We've just been fighting a war for how many years against the Brits? So the main reason we're in, we've got a, a, a recession is, is, is the war. Mm. No, it doesn't matter who's in power, you would be, be in rece recession. But anyway, I don't understand the history in that much detail, but the, the problem that the, the people at the Constitutional Convention were trying to solve was this excess of democracy and these sort of hick, uneducated farmers in right. control. Right. <laughs> mm. And so and, it's that, that kind of historical baggage that we bring into us now, so, and that's why certain things have ended up the way they are. And, and, yeah, that's part and of we it, don't even it? realize why. So 
you know, the idea that you vote, someone gets elected and then they make the decisions on your behalf. They just, they frame, they, they decide which problems should get solved. So they do the agenda setting. They do the decision making. If they can get enough of them to coalesce together, they create the political will to get things done. But it, mm. it's all done insulated mm. from the public. Mm. It's system. That's what the Americans set up. So you know, and people have been critiquing the system for, mm. for for generations, but the critiques never make it to the surface in New Zealand. The idea that the vote, not only you know, getting more votes than your opponents means you are in power. Mm. It also means that the decisions you make supposedly are legitimate. So you mm. have a mandate. You've been given, mm. you've been authorized by the, the act of voting to be binding decisions on everyone else. Mm. Even though you might say, well, sometimes lots of politicians are elected and they don't even get 50% of the vote. Yeah, yeah. So actually 52% of the population it was not on board with that. Mm. So, so does that, how does that work that you now have the ability to make final decisions over everybody? Mm. We're actually probably more than 52% because even if a party won 48%, it's only of the vote and you've still got another 30, 40% of the population that hasn't well, voted. And if, you know, you've got a, certainly in the past, we've, we've had people in power on a sort of mid 30 percent of the vote and they get into power yeah. on the first past the post. So, I mean, it, it just did, to me anyway, it raises large questions. There was a theory behind the system they set up and it was based on social contract theory, mm. but we don't, we don't really believe in social contract theory anymore. I mean, mm. that's an idea from a couple of hundred years ago. So I, I find it. Uh, Unbelievable that, that, you know, 30 years ago, there was the deliberative turn on democratic theory and deliberative democracy has been the biggest topic in, in political theory for the last 30 years. Mm. And it's hardly talked about or taught. Yeah. And what I'm hearing from you, Simon, is some of the language you're using, like that, that language of the mandate that you get and, and these things that are so entrenched in our psyche and in our vocabulary and, you know, especially around election time when they come up. And so, yeah, and then, then you talked earlier about the, the potential global wave of deliberative democracy. And it, it certainly feels like we're, we're right down the bottom of that wave, really, with some small experiments around the country to start to test that out. And yeah, I guess we need those experiments so that we can start to look around and see what the other language is to see what the other options are. Because I think for a lot of people, there aren't any options. It's just this no. is how we this is how it works. No, but even the, even the you know the, this voting system. It's there's so much focus on elections, mm. whereas actually the the key part of democracy happens between the elections when decisions mm. are made. <laughs> Mm. And I, you know, and policies and programs are developed and so on. That's, that's actually the, the, where the rubber hits the road. So not only do they give people mandates, supposedly, mm. but this is how we hold them accountable. Mm. So you do a bad job, you get voted out. And yet, think about it. How often do we vote out politicians who have been involved in scandals or, you know, lost, been kicked out of being a minister for some misdemeanor or, I mean, they, they, mm. they don't lose their seats. Mm. And not held accountable. <laughs> so anyway, I guess it was one of the things going back to trust democracy. I think we do need some organizations that at least start raising some of these questions, pointing out that 
there are alternatives. <laughs> and ideally being involved in, in being able to demonstrate alternative ways of working would be great as well. So mm. that's that, that you've just been talking about. Hey, well, Simon, thank you so much for taking us through that because I'm, I'm not a historian personally. And I know when I, you know, when I studied it at school, it, it made me yawn. And it's only now as I get a little bit older that I start to understand how important it is to understand what are the reasons behind things existing as they do at the moment. And so, yeah, that, that was really helpful to kind of understand what are the origins of, of democracy or, or part of the origins and how does that influence us now. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Beyond Consultation podcast. What did you learn from the show? What should we have talked about? Who else should I interview? I would love to hear your feedback. And if you want to learn more about what you heard today, everything from the show is at www.businesslab.co.nz podcast. If this episode has left you with a burning question, please feel free to submit a voice message through the link on our podcast page. We can then ask that question of a guest in a future episode. Or tag me in a post on LinkedIn or Facebook and I can point you in the right direction. If you want to know when we release new episodes, make it easier for yourself and subscribe on your podcast platform of choice. Again, thank you for listening. Nga mihi mo te whakaronga.